So our speaker is Matt McBride. He's the web content manager for the Church History Department and a graduate student in American History at the University of Utah. He's authored several um, several articles and such. And with that short interview, you'll find the bios for all of our speakers on the Fair Mormon webpage. If you go to fairmormon.org and then click the link for conference, then you can click on each speaker and read the bio. So with that, we're going to turn the time over immediately over to Matt. Come on up. I understand it. Um, I was given this slot so that those who slept in or had to come late to the conference wouldn't be missing out on anything. Um, so to re reward all of you for being here with your, your smiling faces this morning, um, I thought I'd begin by uh, show, start with what I hope will be the 10 best minutes that you will, 10 of the best minutes that you'll, that you'll have um, here today. And luckily for you and for me, that doesn't involve me speaking to you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start with a short video that I think will set the tone for, for the rest of my uh, remarks. So. The relationship that my mom and my dad had was a beautiful one. She said my dad was a very loving man, very caring, very polite, and he used to help her with the chores, and that just tells you how special she was to him. As a founder of the local Black Chamber of Commerce, John Mavimbela was one of the most successful businessmen in his community, not to mention a beloved husband and father. But on the night of June 19, 1955, while driving home from work, he was struck by an oncoming vehicle. My uncle took me along to the accident site. The car was full of blood. Then one of my aunts then said to me, God has taken your father. You won't see him again. In 1955, South Africa was racially divided under a series of laws known as apartheid. For the Mavimbelas, John's death was more than a personal tragedy. The investigation that followed was a reminder that under apartheid, black people couldn't count on being treated fairly. It was quite apparent for any observer that my husband's car had been smashed into his side of the road, but the blame was placed on my dead husband. All this worked together to make me a very better woman. It coincided with the time when there was bitterness throughout the country, and I'm sorry to admit, it became difficult to accept my white friends. My mother was hurt beyond description. She had us as little kids, and she still had a baby to be born after the death of my father. And she was alone on my father's tombstone. She wrote, the lamp remains, meaning that the intensity of the pain she experienced remains on her throat. Even if she has to forgive, even if she has to mingle with the European people, she still has the pain. The Mavimbelas were not alone in feeling racial injustice, as many other South Africans felt similar strain during the period of apartheid. In 1976, 
These tensions came to a head when peaceful protests in Julia's community of Soweto turned into riots. Soweto became unlike any place we had known. It was as if we were in a battlefield which we had never seen before. The youth were devastated by their situation and the circumstances. Some of their family members had gone into exile. Some had witnessed their family members being killed. And they had this hardened hatred. I was a hater because I wanted to revenge my mother's death. But I didn't know who was the enemy. I missed my dad right up until this day. I still miss him. During this time of rioting and anger, my wound of bitterness was in danger of being reopened. It had been over 20 years since John's death, but I could still feel the pain of that time. I looked at these young people and the way in which they expressed their anger openly. They did not even want to see a white person. I could understand their way of thinking. I knew how it was to feel isolated and confused, but I also knew where I was and that maybe the Lord could use me. She was one woman who looked for an opportunity of how can she go over the lump of that pain, of that bitterness, of that hatred. After securing a few parcels of rejected land, Julia set about teaching the youth of Soweto how to grow organic gardens. She started the gardens because she wished to get the youth involved in making Soweto greener, to make them feel that their surroundings belong to them, that they are responsible for them and therefore will not destroy them. She wished not only to repair the physical damage of the recent riots, but also the mental and moral damage. And her message to the youth was, where there was blood stain, a beautiful flower must grow. I used to say when I was planting with them, now look, boys and girls, as we see down here, this soil is solid and hard, but if we push a spade or a fork, we will crack it and come out with lumps. Then, if we break those lumps and throw in seeds, the seeds grow. Let us dig the soil of bitterness, throw in a seed of love, and see what fruits it can give us. Julia's gardening project attracted attention from both black and white South Africans. Eventually, a women's group asked her to lead a project to restore a community hall that was in a state of neglect. This event would change the direction of her life. During the times of the riots, there was just a lot of cleaning to be done. And my mom was quite surprised to see two white boys in white shirts cleaning their community hall. And she reached out to them and they told her that they were the missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was dangerous at the time to do so, but she invited them to come to the house. Said her. Mom, we're fighting with white people and we're bringing white people into the township. And she said, no, these are different people. They're preaching peace. I said, but you know what the situation is in the township. Hmm? They are white. Do you want us to have this house burnt down? Do you want to see these guys being killed? And she said, no, this, they won't be killed. They're doing God's duty. So that was reconciliation that started in the house and it was practiced. I saw it and I had to accept it. She was introduced to the church 1981. That's when I was born. And 
I remember when she told us how the missionaries came and when they walked in, they saw this picture and they asked about this man, which is my grandfather. I looked up on the mantle. There was a picture of a man that was put in a place of honor. And so I asked her who the man was and she very reverently said, that's my husband, John, and he died. She never got over him dying. She just loved him. As any missionary would, I suggested that we look in the scriptures and we talked about being baptized for the dead and that she and John could be sealed in the temple together and be together in the eternities. She must have been touched by the Spirit and she felt it and she nurtured the feeling that she had and it just kept on growing. Julia was soon baptized. It was a turning point in what had been a long spiritual journey. As I stepped down into the waters of baptism, I had a feeling that I was passing through a gateway, like a door opening, leading me into a new place. I felt cleansed, like a new person, with a feeling of forgiveness and gratitude in my heart, and I wanted to share this goodness with everyone. Worshipping with both white and black members, Julia applied her unique life experience to the task of strengthening the youth and helping the saints become more unified. Julia came in, embraced the gospel, was a great missionary, a gracious lady. Julia could not have been more handpicked had the Lord come down himself and grabbed her hand and said, come on, let's go to Soto Branch and get going. She was always teaching and training these early young members of the church in Africa to be the leaders of the church. She would have kids every day, every single day, even on Sundays, and would go like, but it's just the Sabbath. And she would say, yeah, it's the Sabbath, I'm teaching them the gospel. She always told us she loved gardening. And how she related that to us as young men is growing up in an environment where people are very hard and difficult. She told us that, you know, we need to be soft in our hearts, just like this garden, to make sure that the gospel has a place in us, and it stays. You know, I never sensed any bitterness from her. I sensed somebody who was filled with hope for the future, a hope that the gospel will make a difference in the lives of the people, especially in Soweto. Even though we're members of the church, the suspicion between races was always something not just there. But with Sister Julia Mavimbella, it was a completely different story. And looking back now, as an older man, and know what I know about the race relation in South Africa, that was a great lesson for me, to say that you must be able to welcome everybody. Although the end of apartheid was still a decade away, Julia caught a glimpse of the harmony she had been working for in 1985, when she entered the Johannesburg Temple for the first time. As I entered the temple, I found myself truly an equal amongst my brothers and sisters. There is no color in God's kingdom. The strength of the gospel in Julia's life did amazing things for her. She said she wanted to be sold as a family in eternity. When my mom was singing to my dad, that was one of the greatest moments of her life. She was no longer on the Peter side, but looking forward that we as a family all of us should be together so that we can meet with my dad again. So the lamb was replaced by love. The church is true, 
and I know Jesus Christ is the head of it, that and he holds the truth that can help the tensions that are existing in our countries and our, in our souls. It has changed me from being bitter to love other people. It has made me to understand we are all children of one, and that is our Heavenly Father. Okay, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm Matt McBride. I'm going to be talking today about women of the global church, and who better, really, to talk on this topic than a white man from Salt Lake City. <laughs> um, no, the, the, the irony's not lost on me. Um, that's why I felt like it would be important. You may have wondered why I would start with this long, uh, somewhat long video presentation. I felt like it was important. Uh, to start off this morning by letting Julia and her family speak to you uh, first. <clears throat> um, I've had the privilege of working on a couple of projects for the Church History Department over the past few years that have opened my eyes and my ears to the voices and the stories of uh, women in the global church, uh, Latter-day Saint women uh, from uh, various parts of the world. Um, and I obviously can't speak for Julia, and I can't speak for these other women, but what I can do um, is tell you how these women have spoken to me, and what they've taught me about the world that I live in, about the church, uh, about the work that I do, about myself and my family. So I'd like to begin by uh, introducing you briefly to... Um, these projects that I've had the blessing to work on um, and share some of the stories that, I've, uh, that our team has, has tried to tell. And then along the way point out some of the lessons that I've learned. The things that I've learned is I've listened to the voices of Mormon women from Africa, from Europe, from Asia, from the Pacific, and, and from Latin America. So... Uh, First off, I want to call your attention to um, our, our little corner of the big sprawling jungle that is LDS.org, um, and that is history.lds.org. Um, and it's on history.lds.org that you can find really all of the stories that I'll share with you today. Um, some of them are, are written up in, the, in, in stories. Some of them are videos that have been produced. There's one uh, video series in particular that I'm, we're, we're very proud of. Um, and it's, it's called Pioneers in Every Land. You can see some of the stories represented here. And, and that is the series in which um, the story of Julia and Mavimbela is, is told. Um, and I would just say that these videos make, a, I think, hopefully, as, you, as you've seen, a great starting point for a family home evening or, or uh, for a lesson. I think they have some, some important uses. Um, the second um, 
project that I'd call your attention to is the, a more recent project that we've begun to create um, global histories. These are short, about eight-page histories of the church in over 100 countries or, or regions of the world. And um, they are also available on history.elias.org. They have um, statistical overviews and chronologies, but the heart of each one really is a series of short stories uh, about individuals, members of the church, both men and women, uh, who have been who are local uh, to that area and who have, have made a difference in the in the the presence of the church there. Um, these stories are also available in the Gospel Library app, and I'll just take a minute here to to introduce the church history section of the Gospel Library app, um, where you'll find a lot of the publications that you're going to hear about. To, uh, not only for me, but I think from a couple of the other presenters today. Um, if, you, if you scroll down past the scriptures and the manuals and toward the bottom of, of the Gospel Library app, you'll see a church history section. And, you, and it pulls up a screen that looks somewhat like this. Uh, and you can see in the top left there, Saints Volume 1, which you'll hear about uh, more. You can see at the pulpit and the Gospel Topics essays and a whole variety of different uh, resources relating to the history of the church that our department has has helped to prepare and publish, and then you can see there uh, the global histories that I'm referring to. And when you click on that, you'd, you'd see a list of of those histories, and then be able to read uh, the stories. And I'll hasten to to point out for those of you, I can see a few of you that are all looking at the app already. Um, not all of these histories have published yet. So we've just begun this effort, and the first few have published over the past few weeks, and more will be added every week and every month for, for, the, for the next little while. Um, these are a great resource for someone who's called on a mission to a country to you know, give them an opportunity to get to know the culture and the people uh, in the church that they'll, that they'll be serving. And, and they'd have a, a variety of other uses as well. Um, so with, with that uh, introduction to these projects um, that hopefully explain why I'm here and why we started with the video and, and, and what this is, is all about, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, talk you through a few of the stories that have, have made an impact on me. Uh, and there are a lot of women's stories in those global histories and in the series of videos. I can only highlight a few of them today, but I'd encourage you to read others. Uh, the first one is the story of Carmen O'Donnell in Guatemala. Uh, one evening in the fall of 1942, Carmen Galvez and her friends were playing table tennis at a club. Hey, Carmen, come here. This gringo wants to meet you a friend told her, pointing at John O'Donnell, who was a young American man who was working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Guatemala. Well, why in the world should I have to go to the man? If he's a gentleman, he said, she said in Spanish, thinking that he wouldn't understand, he can come and meet me. O'Donnell surprised her by walking across the room and replying in perfect Spanish, where in the, where in the world have you been? The two soon fell in love, but because John was Mormon rather than Catholic, Carmen's friends and family were opposed to their marriage. Uh, after overcoming their objections, John and Carmen were married in June of 1943, and the two hosted in their home the first missionaries to Guatemala. Carmen wanted desperately to understand her husband's dedication to his faith. So she read the Book of Mormon, but she found it difficult to understand. It doesn't mean anything to me, she complained to John. And he patiently asked her to continue to pray for understanding. 
One evening while he was away, Carmen prayed. And she felt surrounded uh, by evil spirits who she said were laughing at her and mocking her. For some reason, she thought, Satan is trying to destroy me in this. So she ran to the missionary's room and she asked for their help. And the missionaries gave her a blessing that helped to calm her fears. Uh, just a short while later, in November of 1948, Carmen O'Donnell became the first Guatemalan uh, to be baptized and a member of the church. And a few days later, the first sister missionaries arrived in Guatemala. And these sisters were instrumental in helping Carmen uh, become involved in the Relief Society. Uh, and then in December, she was called as, as the Relief Society president for the Guatemala City uh, Relief Society. And as, a, as president, she began to put together um, and to compile simplified lessons about gospel principles that she could use to help teach new members of the Relief Society and to teach investigators and friends. Uh, and this, this was something that she did at, you know, because of her experience uh, trying to understand this new religion so recently herself. Um, in 1976, she and John were called uh, John to be the president of the Guatemala City Mission, and later they presided together over the Guatemala Quetzaltenango Mission. And in Quetzaltenango, they developed programs that would have an impact on the worldwide church. They proposed, a, um, as you know, the now familiar three-hour meeting schedule, the consolidated schedule, um, to reduce the need for frequent travel for members that had to cover long distances each Sunday. Uh, they oversaw the construction of small, less expensive local meeting houses. And then notably, they developed a series of simplified Sunday school lessons that were um, designed for new members, and they were based on Carmen's earlier efforts as a Relief Society president. And these lessons actually ended up becoming the basis for the, the church's gospel principles manual. So that's Carmen. Um, Priscilla Sampson Davis. As a young woman, uh, Priscilla attended an Anglican college in Mampong, Ghana. One day she had a dream in which she met Jesus while he was carrying the cross. His face and eyes were covered with blood and tears, and he asked for a handkerchief to wipe his face so he could see. I will do that, my Lord, she promised. Priscilla and her husband, John Sampson Davis, were later among the first to be baptized when missionaries came to Ghana in 1978. And one Sunday morning in 1980, Priscilla was relaxing at home after church when she had another visionary experience. She saw herself in sacrament meeting, and she was approached by a figure in white who told her to look around and tell him what she saw. She noticed that many in the congregation had bowed heads and did not join in the singing. Um, when he asked her why, she replied that they did not speak English. He asked if she'd be willing to help her brothers and sisters, quote, so that they too could join in singing praises to our Heavenly Father. Now, when this vision ended, she immediately took up paper and pencil and began to translate the hymn, Redeemer of Israel, into her native language of Fante. And she soon read an article in an Ensign magazine uh, about how the Book of Mormon had been translated into another language recently, and she heard a voice whisper, couldn't you do that too? And so she began work on uh, her own uh, early translation of the Book of Mormon and some other church materials into Fante. And she said, I always have an eraser with me because the Spirit is always teaching me. 
She felt that by translating hymns and scriptures so that the people of Ghana could see, as she put it, she was fulfilling her promise to give the Lord a handkerchief. Okay, Francisca Brodolova could hardly have foreseen the role that she would play in church history when a missionary knocked on her door in Vienna, Austria in 1913. She was baptized, and then uh, within a year of her conversion, World War II engulfed the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and missionaries returned home. Many male members were called into military service, and this left Franziska and a few other sisters to meet on their own. It actually, though, turned out to be the most contact that Franziska would have for the church with the church for many years. Uh, because after the war, her husband, Frantisek, was promised a post in the new government of Czechoslovakia. They moved to Prague, where Frantiska was the only member of the church in the country. Frantisek passed away a few, few years later, and Frantiska was left with two young daughters, Francis and Jane. She had to provide for them, raise them alone, and she kept the faith as a Latter-day Saint mother in isolation for more than 15 years. You can imagine how hard it would be to help her children appreciate her, her prior experience as a, as a member of the church. Uh, she would say, I, I was raised in the church, uh, and the church was our home. Francisca wrote to church leaders asking the missionaries be assigned to Czechoslovakia, and they were reluctant at first because the last missionary in Prague some 40 years earlier had been uh, banished from the city, uh, first jailed and then banished from the city. But undeterred, she continued writing her letters and praying for missionaries to be, uh, to be uh, a mission to be established. And finally, in 1929, Elder John Witzow, the Quorum of the Twelve, arrived in Prague with a group of missionaries. <clears throat> and that evening, Franziska joined the group who climbed a hill uh, near Karlstein Castle, where Elder Witzow dedicated Czechoslovakia for the preaching of the gospel and formally organized the mission. Her 15 years of isolation were finally at an end. Few people can realize the joy we experience, she wrote. We had been praying for years for this day. And for nearly six months after that, the branch met in her home. She eventually assisted her daughters in translating the Book of Mormon into Czech, laying the foundation for the church in what is now the Czech Republic. Carol Gray was a housewife, a mother of seven, a Relief Society president in Sheffield, England. And she wept in 1992 as she watched the television news coverage of the Civil War in the former Yugoslavia and the suffering of refugees <clears throat> displaced by the hostilities. She wanted to help. So she wrote a check, but she felt prompted to do more. As a Relief Society president, she put out a call for supplies, diapers, formula, sanitary supplies, clothing, blankets, food. She found a charity that could help deliver the goods. Little did she realize that this was only the beginning of a decade-long pursuit that took her on dozens of journeys deep into war-torn Bosnia to distribute the supplies. In the end, she helped deliver over 38 tons of aid. On one occasion, she drove one of 110 trucks in a large convoy deep into dangerous territory with one of her daughters. When the convoy would pull up to a refugee settlement or village, at first the people would be afraid to come out. But Carol's hugs brought trust and restored light to their eyes. The relief workers would unwrap the children's feet, blue with cold, and give them socks and shoes to keep them warm. And on one occasion, they found an old couple in, the, in a ruin of a dwelling, too afraid to answer the door. All of their children and grandchildren who lived in houses surrounding them had been killed. And as they opened the door a crack, Sister Gray said the only thing she knew how to say in their language, I love you. 
They wept and embraced her. What a wonderful challenge it is to take both the good and the bad things in life, Sister Gray said, and create something out of them that brings about the renewing power of hope. Okay, Rigmore Heiste. In 1963, Rigmore Heiste was a 43-year-old mother of three. She lived in a comfortable home. She was married to a well-known physician, and she began to meet with LDS missionaries. Her husband, uh, influenced by the negative writings of a Norwegian theologian named Einar Moland, opposed her conversion, though he grudgingly agreed to her baptism. Unfortunately, her conversion caused additional stress on their already strained marriage, and they divorced three years later. Rigmore enrolled in college at that point and studied education. And during one class, the professor, Inga Lenning, asserted that Norwegians had freedom of religion. Rigmore disagreed. That applies only to members of the state church, she said. Just try and believe some other religion. After class, she recounted to the professor her experiences and explained the negative impact that the the misinformation in Moland's book had had on her marriage. Her professor turned out to be a personal friend of Moland and arranged for her to meet him. Moland told her he could not understand how anyone could convert to Mormonism. Well, if I hadn't known any more about the church than you do, she replied, it would be the last thing I would have done. Where did you get the nonsense in your book? Moland explained that the information was gathered from sources in his university library. Rigmore countered that these sources were biased. She suggested that he find correct inf- he could have found correct information simply by contacting the mission president, whose office was less than 100 meters down the road from his. At the end of the meeting, Molon promised to correct the errors in the next edition of his book and to allow members of the church to review the changes. I've never felt the spirit move me so much, Rigmore later recalled. In 1994, she served as the editor to a book entitled This We Believe, which is a collection of essays written by representatives of 37 faiths in Norway, uh, discussing their religions on their own terms. Um, Now, I don't have time to relate more stories like this in depth. We could talk about uh, Jean Kirschbaum from the Netherlands, who organized cultural nights for the elderly in her city for over 20 years and led a project for uh, an aid project for the people of Poland involving representatives from 17 different religions. We could talk about Evelyn Kleinert in France, who kept the church alive in Paris during World War II via a ministry of letters. Sune Ishida Nachi in Japan, who served as a second mother to missionaries for years and then later helped to preach to expatriate Japanese in Hawaii or Elsie Dharmaraju, whose faith was instrumental in opening portions of India for the preaching of the gospel. Even a woman named Teli'i, who welcomed Addison Pratt and the other missionaries who were the first to arrive in Tubawai in the Austral Islands, and who converted, taught hymns to new members of the church, and administered healing blessings to the sick and afflicted. These are just a few of, of many of the stories, and I hope, I hope that you'll take time uh, to read more of these stories and incorporate them into your work, to your family devotion, and your teaching. Now, if I could just take a moment <clears throat> and reflect with you on some of the things that I've learned as we, as a team, have uh, researched these stories, interviewed these women, uh, and come to appreciate their lives and their faith. Um, the first is just the, uh, an awareness of the biases and the blind spots that we often have 
People are biased. Their biases are persisted through cultures and the products of those cultures, including historical archives. Uh, those biases most often privilege the accounts of men. And of North Americans, uh, particularly in a church context, and those in positions of institutional power. And it takes work to write history that doesn't reflect this bias. My colleague James Goldberg often uses the metaphor of gravity. He reminds us that sources have gravity that will pull us in a certain direction unless we resist the pull. Sometimes this requires new research. Sometimes it's as simple as deciding to recast an episode from a different point of view. So, for example, Carmen O'Donnell's story, as I told it to you today, is actually derived almost entirely from the autobiography of her husband, John. But with a little bit of additional research and, and just kind of that shift in perspective, we were able to foreground Carmen's experience. And you, you get a, a different kind of story as a result. Um, the second is, I, I'm, and I've kind of just used these little two-word pairs to, des- to describe what I've learned, private and public. Um, we've long had a habit of celebrating the public contributions of men and the private or domestic contributions of women. Uh, Jean Kirschbaum's Community Organizing, Rigmore Heister's book on religions in Norway, and Carol Gray's Daring Humanitarian Trips demand that we celebrate also the public contributions of LDS women. Uh, and t- to paraphrase Joseph Smith, a woman filled with the love of God is not content with blessing her family alone, but ranges through the whole world anxious to bless the whole human race. Um, inside and outside. Julia Mavimbela's activism in South Africa that you saw in the video. It leads me to think more carefully about the us versus the world dichotomy that it is so easy to embrace and that often leads us to discount the tremendous good that comes to the church and its members through the actions of other people of goodwill. There's undoubtedly evil in the world. But I think of Joel's prophecy, reiterated by Moroni to Joseph Smith, that the Lord will pour out his spirit on all flesh in the last days. The prophets undoubtedly decry the evil in the world. Sometimes, though, we neglect to see how they also embrace the good that's out there. There's much truth and good in the world that comes to us from outside the church, uh, outside of church channels. And when we hear Julia's story, we we want to be able to claim her goodness somehow for the church, and yet she was fighting injustice and healing youth in Soweto for years before she encountered the missionaries. So her story helps me to see the church uh, differently, to see it as a beacon that can attract people like Julia, um, uh, other people of goodwill to work together. Um, Institution and individual. We routinely undervalue the power of individuals as compared to the power of institutions. The stories of Carol Gray, Julia Mavimbela urge us not to wait for a program to tell us to do good, but to do many things of our own free will and to bring to pass much righteousness as agents. The stories of Francisca Brodelova and Evelyn Kleiner show us how the faith of one Relief Society president or one faithful mother can sustain families and branches even when they're isolated from the organized church geographically or by war. They help us appreciate all the more the communion we enjoy in our wards and branches. Top down and bottom up, we emphasize, and rightly so, the priority of revelation through prophets flowing from the head down through the body. But even the revelations given to Joseph Smith didn't come in a vacuum. And the stories of Carmen O'Donnell and others remind us that revelation comes to all of us. Sometimes the Lord uses humble vessels 
Carmen didn't agitate for simplified instruction in the church. She just went to work using the light that the Lord gave her, and that light eventually became the spark for a new initiative. She reassures us of the wisdom of the church's emphasis on councils and the importance of humility in Christ-like leadership. Charisma and structure. These women are a constant reminder of the more radical spirituality of the early Latter-day Saints. The visionary experiences of Tele'i and Priscilla Sampson Davis and Carmen O'Donnell force those of us who live in a skeptical world, who have come to rely on routines and structures, uh, even those of the church and, and, and certainly of our, of our culture, that there's, there's something more. Dreams, visions, other miracles are sought for and experienced. An awareness of this flowing back from periphery to center can have a revitalizing effect on our faith, just as resources and experience have historically flowed outward uh, from the center here. Uh, Finally, to borrow an analogy from mission studies, I I want to talk for a second about the idea of the kernel and the husk, the idea that there's a transcendent, transcultural core to the message of the gospel, but that it's always carried by and nurtured in a husk of culture. The stories of these women impress this concept on my mind constantly. And even though this kernel-husk metaphor is often contested as a model for understanding transculturation, I think it's helpful because it forces us to think more critically about what is essential or universal and which of our beliefs and practices may be contingent or ephemeral. A greater awareness of these stories might help us realize that our own faith as individuals sometimes becomes captive to other philosophies. Uh, Or it might make us blush at some of the awkward ways we attempt to translate and recontextualize the gospel for people whose cultural backgrounds are so different from our own. In conclusion, let me just say how much I respect the women whose stories I have uh, shared today. They've done remarkable things in their families, their wards, and their communities while working against obstacles I can't fully understand and appreciate because of my privileged circumstances. I hope you'll accept the challenge to read more of their stories and let the women of the Global Church speak to you and through you to those you teach and influence. Thank you. Failed to announce. Today's going to kind of a rough day starting off for me, and I'll tell you about it later. But the, uh, if you have questions, do you have questions for Matt? If you do, we have cards you can write them on. Anybody have any questions? Right here. Right, Tom, if you could. And you can come forward as well with Matt's stuff. Come on. Come on. Come on forward. Yes, you. Yes. <laughs> come on forward. While we're waiting for questions, we want to offer Matt our speaker's gift, which is a lovely brownie, which is yummy, and a gift certificate. (laughs) It's a very heavy brownie, it is. (laughs) So we have a question coming up. I apologize for being slow on the question stuff. Yep, right there. Tom's right behind you, and you can pass it forward. Tom, question right here.
this is a great, this is a great question. Will your focus include minority communities inside the U.S. and Canada? Absolutely. <laughs> I know that's a short answer. Uh, we're still in the middle of, of working on these projects, and, and we we fully intend to. Uh, when we say the global church, we don't mean everywhere except for here. Um, and I think our, we we fully intend to address and hopefully tell uh, the stories of of people from the U.S. and Canada, both um, members of minority communities in those in those countries and 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 others as well. So, let's see. Okay, <laughs> would you cite the quote from Joseph Smith about a woman with faith? That was a paraphrase of Joseph Smith. That you may have, I, and I, I, I should have been very clear about that. That wasn't meant to be, you know, a sleight of hand. But Joseph Smith said that a man filled with the love of God is not content to bless his family alone. And I, I, I paraphrased it to say a woman. Um, I felt like that helped <laughs> that helped make the make that point. Um, and if you're hoping for a citation. What I would do is go to the Joseph Smith Papers website. I am a good history department soldier. No, uh, the church, the, the Joseph Smith Papers website really is going to be the best place to find all uh, anything about about Joseph. Um, are the global histories available also on LDS.org in addition to the Gospel Library? It's very soon. If I was hoping that the landing page on history.lds.org would have launched today. It may. It may still launch today. I have my fingers crossed. Um, so there will be a, kind of a portal to be able to get to them. They are published online, but having that nice front door that gets you to them is, is the one piece that's currently missing, and that should arrive, uh, if not today, later this week. Um, will these stories ever be published in book form? Well, I've, we've thought a little bit about this, too. Um, I can't make any commitment on that yet today. I, I think I'd love to see those stories compiled and put together in that way. Um, right now, they're they're designed as digital-only content. Um, it was, we felt like that was the most economical and the easiest way uh, to deliver them to the membership of the church. They'll be translated, I should add, into Spanish, Portuguese, and then to the language uh, of each of the countries or regions that we that we uh, write on. Um, so let's see here. Any histories about converts in Bangladesh? I don't have any for you today. Uh, that is currently on our list, and we're just kind of working through these. As you can imagine, it's a little bit of a daunting task for for a group of uh, generalists. Really, we uh, each of us has our, our specialty, but when it comes to trying to work out how you complete a project that involves you know writing about the the history of the church in a hundred different places you know all of us are general generalists and so we're just kind of working through them a few at a time a few at a time and and, and also consulting with subject matter experts and specialists in in each field for their input and their review and and Bangladesh will have have its day let's see should I just go ahead and finish these up? Many years ago in Relief Society, the Sisters of the Church were privileged in our study curriculum to learn about sisters in other cultures. How can we get this back into our curriculum for Relief Society? It would bless many lives. Well, hopefully, hopefully somebody more uh, powerful than me is listening to that. 
I love this idea. Um, and the only thing I could suggest is that we've got a lay ministry and we have a room full of people here, all who probably hold callings in your wards. Many of us teach. Uh, take the opportunity to do what James, my colleague, suggested that I shared with you, to work against the gravity that exists. Because, because the, the sources, not only in the archive, but even some of the sources that we publish and put out there um, in this more finished state, all, they all have a gravity and, and tend to... Uh, tend to exhibit some of these biases, and it does take a little bit of work, not only as historians who write or archivists who collect, but as teachers who uh, share the gospel with their classes, whether in Young Women's or Relief Society. I I would say uh, work against that gravity. Look for the stories, and, and, and hopefully you'll find that these resources that we are publishing in the church history uh, section of the app can be be something helpful to you. They are church publications, and I, I think I'm safe in saying that they're fair game for anybody who's preparing uh, a lesson or wanting to to teach a gospel principle. Try to illustrate them with these stories, um, and I, that's that's probably the the best advice I could have now. Um, okay, thank you. Great. I, as a man, feel so. Un- this is a question. I, as a man, feel so unworthy when I see the amazing, meek, and humble things that women do in our lives and for God. What can we do better as men? Oh my goodness! <clears throat> I don't, I, it's no doubt a sincere question. We all feel. I don't have a good answer to it. Probably just we can do everything. <laughs> we can do everything better. Um, One thing, though, that we could we could that I, that this experience has taught me to do better as a man and as a husband is to just be constantly aware and and then consequently amazed at, at um, of, of the good that my wife does, not only in our family but with the students that she teaches. Um, that's a, that's a hard question. Um, the apps and pages on history.lds.org are great tools in building faith through accurate information, uh, but not well known. How can public affairs help raise awareness of what is available on a global level? Is this a question coming from someone who works in public affairs? <laughs> we, we, if so, we could talk afterward. Um, I don't know, maybe this is just an opportunity to conclude uh, with a call for everyone uh, to, to just be... <laughs> more aware and to actually do that work that I've been talking about to to kind of cut against that grain and that gravity and that bias that's there. Um, not only um, specifically relating to women's stories, but really relating to all, all of the stories um, that are out there that are church history stories, but that they're happening elsewhere. We tend to focus a lot on Joseph Smith, uh, and rightly so. Uh, and to lavish a lot of attention on that early church history, um, and sometimes even to devote uh, um, a lot of our time trying to answer specific controversies or questions. One of the things that, uh, that this has helped me to see is that um, when you do that, sometimes that uh, prevents you from treating these other stories uh, with the dignity that they deserve. Uh, or some of the, in so I'm trying to think of a good example. Well, yeah, maybe one example might 
my, and this isn't a, a woman of the global church, but it is a, is a woman who has been on my mind and the mind of some of my team members lately. Her name's Fanny Alger. And when I say that name, I know what popped into your head. There's only one thing that popped into your head, and that's polygamy and Joseph Smith. Uh, but, but, I, but one of the things that this, these projects have helped me to do is see that I need to look at Fanny as a person, as a woman, um, who had a life that went beyond just that one perhaps controversial moment in, in the mid-1830s in Kirtland. And she has a, an interesting story and deserves to be understood and respected on her own terms as, as a person and a woman of faith. Uh, there are probably other examples, but, but hopefully that um, gives you something, something to think about along those lines. So thank you very much. Mm-hmm.